0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I have still been dealing with this sinus infection. I went Tuesday to the ear, nose, throat doctor who did my sinus surgery back in 2015 and he has put me on yet another course of antibiotics and this time oral steroids. Today is the last day of the oral steroids. But If I seem to be talking faster this morning than I normally do, or if I seem a little agitated, or if I say anything just really crazy, that's probably the steroids talking. But let me just warn you in advance, don't anybody cross me this morning. (laughs) I do have roid rage, and uh, my cats are all in hiding at this moment, because they know dad is a little on edge right now. Prior to last week, we had been talking our way through the doctrines of grace, the history of the doctrines of grace, the doctrines that came out of the synod at Dort. And I was pointing out that that's part of what makes GCA unique, in most churches that you walk into, you will not hear these doctrines expounded. Instead, you will hear what is classically known as Arminianism. Arminianism has been around, well, for about as long as Calvinism has, and so Arminianism itself has gone through its own changes. And there are varieties and types of Arminianism out there. And this morning, we will bump into one of those alternate versions of Arminianism as we look at the next of these doctrines of grace that we've been going through. Last week, we took the week off in order to talk about the importance of the resurrection of Christ. We did that for Resurrection Sunday, but this morning, we are now back to talking about irresistible grace, which is where we left off just a couple of weeks ago. Now, this concept, this idea of irresistible grace, more so than just about any of the other doctrines, gets right into the very heart and soul of the matter. Your position on irresistibility says a lot about what you think of God, who you think God is, and what you think of yourself. Part of our sinful depravity is that we do think way too much of ourselves. We hold ourselves in very high esteem, so much so that human beings through the years have postulated that they have free will, that they have the ability to decide what they're going to do or what they're going to think or what they're going to choose at any given moment under any given circumstances and that there is no outside influence that is inspiring us to choose or decide (coughs) for or against anything at any time. That's what's known as libertarian free will that also does not exist. Even psychologists will tell you that genuine libertarian free will does not exist because we are all products of our upbringing, of our culture, of our parents, uh, even of the things that we prefer. And so our decisions are always being influenced by things outside of ourselves. And so genuine libertarian free will simply does not exist. But the idea of free will has been extended, religiously speaking, all the way out to the notion that human beings are independent thinkers, independent deciders, who can even decide on their own eternity, We even decide on whether we're going to choose God or not. We even decide whether we're going to go to heaven or hell, that these decisions are all left up to us. And the students of Jacob Arminius, way back at the Synod of Dort, started with that sort of a priori position. So even though they admitted that mankind was indeed fallen, that mankind was sinful and depraved, And so they admitted that it required grace in order for anybody to be saved. They also postulated that human beings could resist that grace even though God may give them or offer them that grace. So the question became, is God resistible or not? And that's why I said, how you react to this question of the irresistibility of God's grace has an awful lot to do with what you think of God and what you think of your relationship with God. Who is the deciding factor? Whose choice actually is the choice that's going to stand? You're either going to say that it's your decision and your choice that's going to stand, or you're going to say that it's God's decision, God's choice that's going to stand, And the only God that you do find in the Bible is a God who demonstrates himself as being completely irresistible. Years ago, up at Main Street Baptist Church, I preached a message at the conference there on the irresistibility of God. It's still on our YouTube channel, it's still on our website, but the premise that I taught from was that everything about God, from beginning to end, is irresistible. And you don't find any examples in human history where God ever attempted to do something but failed at it because people simply did not choose to cooperate with him in whatever it was he was attempting to do. Rather, what you see in the Bible is the consistency of God declaring, I will do this, And then he does it, and nobody, no other being in the universe, certainly no created being, is able to resist the will of God once God has declared that this is what his will is and this is what he is going to do. And so God, across the board, is irresistible. And I broke it down even to things like when God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Clearly, the Garden of Eden was preferable to being east of Eden. Clearly, it was better to be in the Garden where the Tree of Life was. That's the preferable place to be, but once God told them to leave the Garden, he irresistibly told them that. They were not left to decide whether they would prefer to leave or not. They just simply had to leave, and God, in order to show the irresistibility of that decree, also stationed an angel with a flaming sword standing at the gate to make sure that nobody ever went back to the Garden of Eden. The point of all that being, God irresistibly declares things. Uh, The examples that I gave that are still accurate and valid examples are things like God giving the law to Israel when he called Moses up onto Mount Sinai and declared the law to him and had Moses go down and declare to Israel what the law of God was, there was no point at which God said, is that okay with you? Or go check with the children of Israel and find out if they're willing to cooperate with me on this whole law thing. Rather, what God did was he disposed his law He gave Israel his law, and they were without option. And it was a difficult law. And God said, Do it, and you'll live by it, fully knowing that nobody was going to do it. And he said, And when you don't do it, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to hurt you bad. And yet, he still dispensed that law to his people because it was up to him. Do you get what I'm saying? God is irresistible when he tells you to do things, to go places. When he dispenses his will, his is the only will that is actually going to come to fruition. Certainly the story of Job tells us that. Certainly the story of Jonah tells us that. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah says no. And then he goes on to a ship running away from God. He gets thrown off the ship, God has prepared a large fish, and then after his three days and three nights in the belly of the large fish, he comes to the conclusion that salvation is of the Lord. He ends up being thrown up by the fish, and then he realizes that Nineveh is now his destination. In other words, once God says, you're going there, well then you're going there, and no amount of human enterprise to try to do something else or go somewhere else is going to result in anything other than what God has already declared is going to be the case. I'm just trying to build up the notion that God from first to last, from beginning to end, from top to bottom, from side to side, wall to wall, God is irresistible completely. It's not just that he is irresistible in his grace. When people stand in the judgment before God and God declares to them, go to outer darkness, leave my presence eternally, there's not going to be an option. No one's going to be able to argue at that moment and say, wait a minute, let me plead my case. Instead, once God declares his judgment, that judgment is irresistible. They're not going to be able to say, but wait, I want to exercise my free will to stay here in heaven with you because... This, the heavenly splendor, looks to me to be a whole lot better than outer darkness where the worm never sleeps and the fire is never quenched. I prefer heaven and so I'll exercise my free will to stay here. That's not ever going to occur because God is across the board irresistible in everything that he does and the Bible continually declares that God's irresistibility is on display in human history and in prophecy and in his ability to tell us what the future's going to be and that it comes to be that because everything that God declares is in fact irresistible that was the rather quick introduction made even quicker by steroids <laughs> sorry The place where we left off two weeks ago was that we started recounting the doctrines of grace that we had already gone through. And I said, total depravity, that's your part. That's what you bring to the party. You bring your depravity, your sin, your fallenness, your incapability. So total depravity, that describes you As a result, if anybody is actually saved, it can't be a result of anything that is in anybody, given that everybody is totally depraved. So it can't be that God looked down from heaven and saw somebody that was doing a little bit better than everybody else, and then said, well, I'm going to save him on the basis of the fact that he's a little bit better. Instead, salvation has to be a result of God making the determination. He has to decide Therefore, that's what unconditional election is. Total depravity, that's you. Unconditional election, that's the father. He's the one that chooses. He's the one that is responsible for names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. He then gave the son those people. The son came to earth and then gave himself as a sacrifice for those people. That's limited atonement. That's particular redemption. Now that we're in irresistible grace, this is where the Holy Spirit of God comes in, because God then gives those people whom he chose, whom he gave to the Son, whom the Son redeemed, God then gives those people his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit does a couple of things, and that's why these last Two of the five doctrines are so important. Number one, it brings them the grace of God that's going to give them the ability to see, to hear, to understand the things of God. But it's also going to give them the continuity of faith, the continuation of faith that we're going to get into when we start talking about the perseverance of the saints, that the saints are going to continue in the faith because it isn't their faith to begin with. It's the faith that God has given them. So I hope you see how these five doctrines of grace all fit together. These are more than just inventions. These are more than just doctrinal ideas that guys with long beards sat around 500 years ago and dreamed up. Now, irresistible grace is an inevitability if you understand who God is and who we are. We, because we are fallen, depraved creatures, we have no concept of what actual perfection is. There's nothing about us, there's nothing about our lives that is actually genuinely perfect. Everything in this world is running down. Uh, That is even true in thermonuclear dynamics the reality that everything is running down. If you leave a picnic table out in the rain for a few seasons, it does not become better. It breaks down. Things rust, things corrupt. And that is the way of all life. I know that as I have aged, as I've gotten older, I know it's hard to tell that just from looking at me, but I'm not the young, youthful pup I once was. And as I've gotten older, I have discovered that my body is not getting better. My body is getting more difficult. It's more rebellious now than it used to be. Because everything in life is running down. Therefore, we don't know what actual perfection is. God doesn't know anything but perfection. Therefore, everything about God, everything that is intrinsic to God, is inherently perfect. That's why we read things like, perfect love casts out fear. None of us know what perfect love is. Our love is always conditioned on circumstances. Our love is always conditioned on the person that we're loving, If the person we're loving decides they don't love us anymore, well, then our love for them changes. So we don't know what it is to have perfect love that is also perfectly sacrificial, that also is not without moments of doubt and fear. But God, who is perfect, his love is a perfect love that doesn't change. Because it's perfect, it doesn't have to be altered. It doesn't have to be improved. There's nothing about it that changes. That's the same with God's grace. God's grace is a perfect grace, which means everything that is necessary for us as sinful, depraved people is found in the grace of God, and it doesn't change because if the grace of God were to change, that would be for God to admit that something about him was not correct the first time he did it. And so then he had to change something about it. He had to change his mind. He had to change his approach. He had to change something about the way he did things. But because he is infinitely perfect, everything he does is complete and perfect from the beginning of the doing of it. And so as soon as he gives his grace to human beings, that is a perfect grace given perfectly because of his perfect love. And therefore that perfect love casts out fear. Are you getting some idea of the difference between God in his absolute holy perfection? His holiness doesn't waver. There's no shadow of turning in God. His holiness is a perfect holiness far beyond what we in our sinful, depraved minds can conceive of. We can't begin to think of it. We can't begin to really truly imagine what perfect holiness is. Because our holiness, our concept of holiness, is all relative to what we know. If we're doing slightly better this week than we did last week, we think that we're somehow more sanctified than we were a week ago, because we only know relative sanctification. We only know relative holiness. But God is perfectly holy. That's why the Bible says that he's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. Whatever decisions he makes in terms of salvation or ultimate condemnation are perfect judgments because he is perfect in all his ways. Whatever he decides is perfect. And so to imagine that a God who is that completely righteous and holy and powerful, by the way, his power is also perfect power. We even sing about it when we sing holy, 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 One of the phrases we sing is perfect in power, love, and purity. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his holiness, his purity. But he's also perfect in his holiness and his power. And because he's perfect in his power, that means that he's the one that has all the power. He even gives himself the proper name, El Shaddai, designating himself as being the all-powerful one. He's the omnipotent one. So... We're talking about a God who has all the power, all the authority, all the holiness, all the righteousness. He's the one who has the perfect decision-making ability, who has a perfect will, who has perfect love, who has perfect grace. And so then if that God, who is that perfect and that unchanging in all his ways, who also has all that perfect power, if he decides that he is going to be good and gracious to you, can you resist that? Well, that's why I said the question of irresistible grace starts with who do you think God is? And if you think you can resist that God, you have an imaginary God. You have a God you have made up in your head, and you're not talking about the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible keeps declaring that he does whatever he wants. It's definitional to him. David writes... Where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. And then, by definition, and He does whatever He pleases. Whatever His pleasure is, whatever He decides, that's what He does. Because He is perfect not only in his ability to decide what to do, but he's perfect in the doing of it, and he's perfect in the power that lays behind the doing of it, and he is perfect in the decision-making of how that power is exercised and how it comes to fruition here on planet Earth among his creation Which creation is going to end up perfectly in the very place that he decided it's going to end up? Are you getting a sense of how perfect I'm trying to describe God as being? And it's hard for us. I get it. It's tough for us to wrap our brains around because of our inherent imperfection. Everything about us is imperfect, including our thinking. And so it's really difficult for us in our fallen state to consider a completely righteous, holy perfect God but he is perfect in all his ways and if he decides in his perfection to be gracious to you you do not have the ability to deny him the right to be gracious to you you got it are you becoming persuaded of the irresistibility of God's grace? Because it's not just grace. It's not just one characteristic. It's not just one attribute of God that is irresistible. It is God who is irresistible in all his ways. Everything about God is irresistible. Why do you keep coming back? Why do you come to church Even in the midst of the coronavirus, even in the midst of me personally telling you, you know, we're going to scale down for a little bit. Don't be here. And yet you're all here this morning. Why is that? It's because God, who has been gracious to you, is also irresistible to you. And you find yourself, despite all the circumstances of life that would work to the contrary, you find yourself nevertheless thinking, I want to go make this testimony. I want to go be part of church this morning. I want to go sing with the saints. I want to go listen to his word preached. I want to go praise God. It is irresistible to me. Why are you a Christian today? If you're honest with yourself, if you're going to just come face to face with you, however that works, if you look at yourself in the mirror... (laughs) and you come face to face with you and you're being really dead level honest with you about you, you're going to have to admit that if it weren't for God, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be a Christian. If he was not sustaining you, if he wasn't keeping you, you'd be off like a shot and you know you would. You'd be making Hitler look like an amateur left to yourself. And you know you would, because that's what goes on inside you. That's what's in your heart and your brain. Have you ever had one of those moments where you have thought something that was so upsetting to you that you thought, how in the world did that piece of utter depravity go running through my head? Me? I consider myself sanctified, I consider myself separated, I love God, I am trusting in Christ and yet I have these kind of depraved thoughts in my head and in my heart, how can that truly be me or is it just me, am I just talking about me or is it the rest of you too, well the very fact that that exists in your sinful flesh and in your sinful brain proves, demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that if God ever left you to yourself, that's what you're going toward. You're running as fast as you can toward your wickedness, because that's what still exists in your depraved brain. It is God, by his grace, who is keeping you, who is preserving you, who is causing you to persevere, and who is guaranteeing your eternity because of the finished work of Christ and his choice of you, that perfect choice of you, when he chose perfectly before the foundation of the world. Your security is not wrapped up in your ability to keep yourself. Your stability eternally is all wrapped up in God's unchanging perfection and his irresistibility. In other words, if he wants you, he's going to get you. You got it? And we're all here this morning because we got God. We, We got God. God got us. And that's why we're here. That was indeed all introduction. The salvation of men is the work that engages all three members of the Holy Trinity. I hope that you've already seen some of that in my introductory comments. It is the father that elected some before the world began. It is the son who purchased their redemption and satisfied the penalty that was demanded for their sin. And then the Holy Spirit inhabits and draws those people to God, changing their hearts, changing their minds, and making them willing, most willing, to understand, hear, and live by the things of God. Most of us can think of a time when we really did not care about the things of God. I can think of a time when I didn't care. The most important thing in my life at one point was whether bronze snare drums sounded better than maple snare drums. And the debate still stands. I'm on the side of maple for anybody who wants to engage that argument. I mean, at one time, that's what I cared about. I didn't care about the things of God. I didn't care about going to church. Now I not only go to church, but I'm pretty visible in church because God got a hold of me irresistibly and changed my mind so that I went from unwilling to utterly willing. He opened my eyes, opened my ears, took out my stony heart, gave me that heart of flesh, gave me his word, and then revealed himself to me. And he did all that through the Holy Spirit. And so, as we're talking about irresistible grace, it's impossible not to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the people of God. So, Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the process of saving any individual person. In essence, this doctrine is based on the very character and nature of God, as I've already said. He directs the outcome of absolutely everything. We know that. We say that He is sovereign. When we say that he's sovereign, we mean he's in charge of everything. He's in charge of the virus that's going around right now. The same way that he's in charge of all of the galaxies that are satellites to other galaxies. He's in charge of everything from the largest to the smallest. And because he's in charge of everything, he's also in charge of who gets saved and who's going to be in his presence eternally. That's also up to him. Human beings in our ego like to think, no, that's up to us. We're willing to say that God is in charge of big things, cyclones, earthquakes, sicknesses, plagues, famines. Okay, God's in charge of that. But then people will argue when it comes to salvation... When it comes to whether I go to heaven or hell, that's the place where they refuse to let go of their own willfulness, and they will claim that it is up to them, and that God, because he is a gentleman, and because he would not encroach on the will of his creatures, that's the one place where he leaves it up to them, which seems incredibly unkind and unloving of God, because that is the one place where you really want him to have all the decision-making ability— Because after all, we're talking about your ever-living, never-dying soul. And that seems like the one place where you'd be saying, God, don't leave this one up to me. Because I decide badly on a regular basis. I decide badly in pretty much every decision I've ever made. Anybody here ever chosen another person or a job? Or have you ever made a decision you regretted later? That's because we all decide badly. And so God knows that. He knows we're really not very good at making our own decisions. Why would God leave it up to us to decide whether or not we're going to be saved? Well, the Arminian contingent argued that not only is it up to you to make that decision, yes, it is the grace of God that brings you to salvation. That's an absolute requirement. That's a necessity because you are actually sinful and depraved. They admitted that, but then they said the grace of God is something you can resist. But then in order to keep free will intact, they also said that once you had by your own will denied the grace of God and became unsaved, that you could then later on decide to get saved again. And so I think you can see why it's so important to talk about the irresistibility of grace and also the perseverance of the saints, that saints are not saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost. Now, I mentioned in my opening comments, I think I'm still making opening comments. I'm not really sure here, but Arminianism itself has gone through mutations. It has changed through the years, And now there is a version of Arminianism that is very popular that Jeff and I, when we did the first theology talk together, we ran into this version of Arminianism, which says that it is the grace of God that brings you to salvation. But then once you have chosen God, once you have decided to be saved, that at that point, you can never be lost again. And so we said, that means that at the point where you're saved, you lose your free will because you're, it's up to you to get saved. It's up to you to decide. But then once you have decided, God keeps you in that safe state and you can't lose that salvation. That was what was being taught at the church that was the inspiration for the theology talk. But... Genuine Arminianism would have to demand the continuation of free will so that a human being can, in a single lifetime, choose to be saved and then unsaved and then saved again and then lose that salvation again. That has to be a possibility in order to maintain human free will. If you say that man has a free will to choose to be saved, but then he loses that free will because he can never be lost again once He's in Christ. That, by the way, is the theology of the carnal Christian. Have you ever heard that? Uh, The idea that somebody makes a profession of faith in Christ. They've made Jesus their Lord and their Savior. And so then they have been declared saved by some preacher, some church somewhere. They said, come to the front, now that you've come to the front, now that you've chosen Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are now declared saved. But then many of those people don't remain in the faith. They don't continue walking in the faith, and in fact, they they disappear from the church or the Christian faith. So then what are you going to do about them? They're now walking in carnality, but they've been declared saved by the preacher or by the church. So what are you going to do about that? So the theology of the carnal Christian developed. The idea that you can be a Christian and be saved while you're walking in carnality. You're living like the world, you're living like hell, but because you made that choice once upon a time many years ago, you're okay eternally. Well, again, the Bible doesn't allow for that. The Bible really only allows for Once you are saved, you're going to walk continually in that salvation. Your life is going to be a demonstration of the fact that you have been saved. And because you're perfectly saved by a perfect God who is irresistible in his perfection, you're not going to be able to lose that salvation and lose that perseverance that he has put into you. There are people who think that just through neglect just through forgetfulness, just through busyness, that they can just forget about God and just lose their salvation. That's an impossibility if you have been saved by an absolutely perfect God. So consistent Arminianism would say you can be saved and lost, saved and lost, saved and lost. Genuine doctrines of grace, biblical teaching would say once you're saved, you're saved because it's a finished decision by an absolutely perfect God who is irresistible in deciding to save you. Got that? And that is why sometimes you will see people who will drift for a little bit, people who you believe are, who give all the indications of being saved, and then you'll see them drift. And God will give them just enough rope so that they get a good whiff of themselves. I think I just mixed my metaphors. (laughs) But he'll allow them to get a good sense of what they're really like without him. And then if they really do belong to him, he draws them back to himself. He doesn't leave them adrift. If somebody comes to Christ, gives the indication that they are a Christian, and then they drift away and they just stay away. And I don't just mean stay away from any particular church but they stay away from the things of God. They stay away from their Bible. They stay away from the worship of God. Well, then the Bible also accounts for that. And the Bible doesn't say they were saved and then lost. Rather, John says they went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out from us to make manifest that they were never of us. And so there are people who can pretend Christianity, who find Christianity attractive and so they're drawn to Christianity for one reason or another, especially if a church might offer extra programs and we'll take care of your kids and we've got a lot of extra stuff so that the church becomes like a giant YMCA where you just pay your regular membership dues and then you get to participate in all the stuff that the church does. Those kind of churches have a great deal of turnover because people drift in and drift out according to how it affects them. But people that are genuinely saved by God were saved by his spirit, through his word, through the finished sacrificial work of Christ. None of those things change, therefore the salvation doesn't change, and therefore their continuity in the faith doesn't change, and therefore they persevere. I hope that you're seeing how these last two doctrines tie together. The doctrine of irresistible grace basically means that God is absolutely sovereign and he can overcome any resistance to anything he wills to do. Again, what resistance is there that is on par with the almighty power of God that decided to do something? If God decides he's going to do it and then he exercises his almightiness to accomplish it, Well, then what contrary power is strong enough to put up a good fight against the irresistible, all-powerful God? God can do whatever he wants to, and he's able to overcome resistance. When you did not believe, you actively resisted the things of God. And he overcame you. He overcame your resistance. Your resistance is nothing to a perfect, all-powerful God. The whole reason that you do believe is because he overcame your unbelief. In Daniel 4.35, we read things like, God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand no one can say what are you doing okay those kinds of declarations those kinds of revelations where God is saying this is what I am like as God describes himself in a way that we human beings can comprehend he uses the language of irresistibility to demonstrate what he's like and he says that he does all his will everything he wants to do whether among the hosts of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth he does all his will and nobody in heaven, hell or earth can stop him that's what the phrase means nobody can stay his hand nobody can catch him in the midst of doing something and say wait, wait, don't do that He does whatever he wants, every time he wants, any time he wants, with whoever he wants, anywhere he wants, every time he wants to do it, and nobody can stop him. As I already said, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. So whatever God's pleased to do, that's what he does. God doesn't do what he doesn't want to do, and no amount of our... Free will can talk him into doing what he doesn't want to do. He does whatever he wants to do. He doesn't do what he doesn't want to do. And he is the only entity in all of creation and eternity who has that kind of freedom. He has the absolute perfect freedom of will to do whatever he wants to do. Everybody else's will, everybody else's decision is dependent On him. In other words, if you choose to do something that he's chosen you're not gonna do, well, guess what? You're not gonna do it. Or if he's chosen that you are going to do something that you have decided you're not going to, because there was a point in your life where you were doing the I'm not gonna be a Christian thing. There was a time when I looked at Christians and thought they were just weak. Thought that they just needed that crutch psychologically or emotionally to carry them through life. They didn't have the strength of moral purpitude and character to get through this life and its hardships. They needed a crutch. And then God changed my mind because even as I was determined not to do that, He was determined that I would. And guess which will won out? Wasn't mine. I was busy thinking about snare drums. Okay, so changing human beings. That's why we're talking about this. Changing human beings from their sinful, depraved state to a state where they're thinking about the things of God and capable of thinking about the things of God. Bringing people to a point where they want the will of God in their lives, where they desire the things of God. That change, that internal change to human beings... Takes an absolute miracle. It takes the power of God. No human being ever did that on their own. Nobody was ever walking through their little sinful life and then decided one day, hey, you know what I should do? I should probably clean myself up and go to God. That never occurred. That never happened. In order for anybody to come to God, it has to be God who began the relationship who is drawing that person and then regenerating that sinful person, creating them anew, giving them a new heart, changing their will, changing their desires, bringing them to repentance. All of that is what lays at the heart of the irresistible grace doctrine that it is God who has to do that for the person because the person is incapable of doing it themselves. The question of whether men have the ability to refuse that kind of gracious recreation is the subject of the debate. That's what people are arguing to this very day. People are still arguing about whether they have the ability to resist God when God decides to change them. The other phrase that sometimes you'll hear, instead of irresistible grace, you'll sometimes hear theologians talk about invincible grace, and when they say invincible grace, what they mean by it is an all-powerful grace. We don't usually think of grace unconquered. We don't usually think of grace as being invincible and that strong. When we think the word grace, we give it pleasant characteristics niceness, kindness, long-sufferingness. But if we're talking about an all-powerful God, if we're talking about the God who created heaven and earth, if we're talking about the God who can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it and nobody can stop him, then there is also an unstoppability to his grace, an invincibility. That means there's nothing that can overcome his grace once he exercises his grace toward any body. There's nothing that person or any of the demons and devils of hell or the prince of the power of the air himself. There's nobody who can overcome that grace because the grace itself is invincible, unconquerable because it is a grace that belongs to an unconquerable, invincible, unchanging, perfect God. That should make you feel really good about grace. But what I'm also trying to do is expand your thinking and definition of what grace is. Grace is more than just God being nice. It's also God being and demonstrating himself to be unconquerable. It's almost like God saying, watch me, I'll do this. I'm going to go save the unsavable. I'm going to go overwhelm people who hate me. I'm going to turn my enemies to the point where they become trophies of grace. Now watch me. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's an unconquerable, invincible grace. We use that term irresistible grace just because it expresses that the unmerited kindness of God, which is essentially what grace is, it means that we're getting kindness from God that we didn't earn, we didn't merit. And that unmerited kindness of God is something that a man is just powerless to resist. And so we talk about the irresistibility of grace. So let's start at prophecy. Now that the morning is just about over and the clock tells me I've got about 10 minutes left, I'm finally ready to start the lesson. What I'm going to try to do for a little bit is just demonstrate to you This irresistibility of God, this irresistibility to stop God from doing whatever God wants to do, and in so doing, I'm also going to undermine the concept of free will. It's unavoidable. You can't defend the concept of human free will and at the same time talk about irresistible grace. The two are contrary to each other. One or the other is going to win out. Either human free will has to win out or God's will is going to win out. Of course, you know which side I'm on, you know which side the Bible is on, which is that the will of God is always the one that wins out, and that the will of human beings is remarkably restricted. The will of human beings is limited to their ability, and the only ability you have is the ability to sin. You have the ability to rebel, and that's all you've got. You don't have the natural ability to choose God or to be righteous or to be holy or to do anything that would obligate God. So therefore, since you have a very limited will, since your will is in bondage, according to Martin Luther, in the bondage of the will, a great phrase, because your will is wrapped up in your sinfulness then you're simply unable to do the things that God requires of you. God, by his grace, has to give you the ability to do the things that he requires from you. Oh, and so we were trying to undermine free will, and then I wandered off. That's the steroids. (laughs) I, I wandered off again. I think one of the most effective ways to undermine the concept of human free will is prophecy. You all know that I'm a big fan of prophecy. You know that I'm not afraid to teach prophecy because I think prophecy demonstrates God's control of human history. The very fact that he can say what's going to happen and then it does happen proves that God's the one in charge. And if you look into the details of any prophecy, anything in the Bible, and you consider for a moment how many decisions had to get made by human beings in order to bring about that event, then you can see that none of those decisions were made independently. All of those decisions were made in accordance with what God had already determined was going to be the outcome. Uh, A perfect demonstration of that is that In the Old Testament, we're told that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now that is said a couple hundred years before Jesus is actually born. During those couple of hundred years, think about the number of decisions that had to be made. Even just big ones that are easy to think of, like certain people had to marry certain people. And those people had to have children, and then they had to name those children, and they had to move to certain places, they had to live in certain areas. They had to have certain jobs that sustained them. They had to stay alive for a while. They had, there were just all of these day-to-day decisions that they had to make that all resulted in Jesus actually being born in Bethlehem. And despite the fact that Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth at the time, a governor decides to, to have a counting of the people to take a census That results in everybody going back to their ancestral homeland, which takes Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem at the exact time that Jesus is born. So even though they don't live in Bethlehem, nevertheless, Jesus is born in Bethlehem exactly like the scripture prophesied was going to happen. So how many decisions including the the fathers, the mothers, the grandmothers, the grandfathers, even a Roman governor making decisions. How many decisions got made that resulted in exactly what God said was going to happen? My point in trying to recount some of that is to say, okay, now how many of those decisions were free will decisions? Now, to the person making those decisions, every one of them seemed like an independent thought, an independent decision. To them, it seemed like a good idea to just go do that. But every one of those decisions ended up resulting in exactly what God said was going to happen. Therefore, I believe that the sovereign God made sure that every one of those decisions fell under his omnipotent and perfect power so that all those decisions resulted in the outcome that he had already by his power said were going to happen in other words, there's no randomness there are no details left unattended to there's nothing that ever happened that God went whoops, I didn't see that coming everything that occurs in his creation occurs according to what he has determined is going to occur otherwise No New Jerusalem. You get the idea? Otherwise, the ultimate outcome that is predicted in the Bible, all the saints of God gathered in the New Jerusalem, that's the ultimate outcome that we're told about. Well, that can't happen if human beings are allowed to choose what the destiny of those human beings is going to be. Rather, destiny, human activity, human history is all a result of the perfect and omnipotent will of God who does whatever he pleases, and therefore nothing is left up to chance. And if that is the fact, then there's no place to insert independent human free will. You get it? Yep. That's my argument. So let's take a look at it like this. Isaiah 46, 8-10. God here is describing himself. God defining himself, and I think when God takes the time to tell you what he himself is like, you ought to sit up and pay attention. You ought to say, well, this is God talking about God. This is God telling me what God is like, so I ought to cast aside my opinions, my thoughts, my imaginations, and I ought to pay attention to what God says about himself, because that would be the only genuinely accurate description. Remember this, says God, Isaiah 46, starting at verse 8. Remember this and be assured. I like it when God talks in double positives. We're really good at double negatives. God does these double positives all the time. Verily, verily. You know, he's kind of pay attention, sit up and pay attention. When God says, not only remember this, but also rest assured of this. This is absolutely true. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. God in his perfectness, in his holiness, is talking to sinners and explaining himself by his kindness, by his grace. He's under no obligation to tell anybody anything about himself. And yet he says, you transgressors, remember this because I'm going to tell you something important. It's his way of saying, wake up, pay attention, and rest assured of this. Remember the former things long past. Okay, so remember your history. Remember the things I did. He's talking to the Jews here. He's talking, when speaking through Isaiah, he's talking to his his chosen people, Israel. And he says, remember the things I've already done the way that I delivered you through the sea, the way that I delivered you from Egypt, the way that I fed you in the wilderness, the way that I gave you my law, the way that I buried Korah and his band. Remember the things that I've done, the things that are already long past. Remember those things. For I am God, so the things past are the demonstration, are the proof, are the evidence that he offers for the fact that he is God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Then after he is declared, definitionally, there's none like me, he then gives evidence that proves there's nobody like him. And what is his evidence? Here's the evidence. There's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Not some of my good pleasure, depending on whether you will agree and cooperate with me but I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Whatever I choose to do, that's what I'm going to accomplish. And he uses the fact that he's able to declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times declare things that aren't yet done. We go back and we read stuff in the Old Testament that hasn't been accomplished yet. Things of ancient times that were written down by prophets that haven't come to their fruition yet. And yet God says, that's me demonstrating me. That's me showing my singleness, my uniqueness. That's me demonstrating that there is no other God but me because after all, who else can do this? And since nobody else can do this, that demonstrates that I am the only God and there will be no other gods before me. So I like the fact that God, in trying to demonstrate to human beings trying to show some part of himself, considering that he is incomprehensible to our little corrupt human brains, he decided to use human history as the demonstration, the same way that Paul would say that the heavens, the creation, demonstrate the power of God. God says that just even human history demonstrates the existence of God because He declares the end from the beginning, which nobody can do. And then as those things are accomplished in human history, those things one by one become continual demonstrations of, see, it's God. See, it's God again. See, I told you. See, I like the fact that God uses that as his example and then declares, I will His is the only will that is ever actually accomplished. His is the perfect will. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. None of you get to say that. None of you get to say that. In fact, we're even told in the Bible that we have to add caveats to our plans. We'll say, I'll do thus and so if the Lord wills. Because my will is subjugated to his will and unless he wills it i'm really not going to do that i may want to do that i may think i'm going to do that but my will is completely bound by the fact that i'm incapable and he's fully capable so he's the only one who can say i will accomplish all my good will later in isaiah 55 God then declares, based on his ability to do whatever he wants to do, based on his description of himself as being the only one who can do whatever he wants to do anytime he wants to do it, being the one who has said, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, then he turns to his own word and says, when I put my word forward, it will accomplish all. Whatever I choose to accomplish by my word, it's not going to come back to me void. It's not going to go down to the planet and then bounce off the planet and come back to me without accomplishing the very thing that I sent it to do. Notice, by the way, that God does not just offer his word. He does not just dispense his word and display it in case anybody wants to take advantage of it. He says that he actively sends his word. He sends his word to accomplish his good pleasure, his good will. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 10, he uses snow and rain as his example. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, in that same way that rain and snow, moisture from the heavens has to come down in order for stuff to grow so that people can eat, in the same way that the water accomplishes what God sent it to accomplish, God then says, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, the King James says it will not return to me void, without accomplishing What I desire it to accomplish and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's very specific language from God saying that he sends his word on purpose to accomplish particular things and whatever he sent it to accomplish, that's the very thing that it's going to accomplish. Why? Because he's irresistible. Because whatever he says is what's actually going to occur. And I like the fact, I can't get over the fact that when God talks about his own word, he talks about it as a living thing that is actively accomplishing the things that he sent it to accomplish. He didn't just send his word randomly, he sends his word to people. You can go to pretty much any hotel in America and the Gideons have been good about making sure there's a Bible in a drawer somewhere in every hotel room. The very fact that there are Bibles in hotel rooms is not God sending his word. That's the Gideons sending God's word. So we're talking about much more than just the writing and publication of Bibles and the distribution of Bibles. We're talking about People being regenerated, being changed from the inside, going from unwilling to willing, going from being enemies of God to loving God, and that change that happens inside them happens as a result of the very word of God coming to them and accomplishing what God sent it to them to accomplish. Here, I'll put it this way. Was there ever a time when you tried to read the Bible and you just couldn't make hide nor hair out of it? That was true of me. I was told as a young Lutheran boy to sit down and read the Bible. And so I tried to. And I was, I was okay through the early parts of Genesis. I was familiar with the Ark story, you know. So I, I, oh, okay, I got this thing. I got this Bible thing. I didn't understand the Abraham stuff, all that stuff. And the Exodus story, okay, I get it. God took them out of Egypt. But man, by the time I got to the book of Numbers... I got no idea what's going on anymore. There's so much begatting going on that is to, why these numbers? Why these tribes? Why these? I, I just couldn't make hide nor hair out of the Bible. I couldn't understand what was going on in the Bible and I couldn't understand the importance of reading it. What's the value of it? And then, one day, suddenly the Bible started making sense to me. Why? Because God sent his word to accomplish what he wanted it to accomplish. And suddenly it went from being just the Bible to being the sent word of God. I've been sitting listening to men preach before and had those moments. Not unlike the moment that we had here last week where suddenly you realize the king is present. The king is here. And suddenly the word of God burns in our hearts. Suddenly it inspires us, and it goes from being just a church service to communing with the very living God who is here among his people. That's a very different thing. But that's the reality of God inhabiting his word. And making his word accomplish what he sent it to accomplish. Exercising that almighty power of his to give life, breathe life into his creatures through his word. And that's what God said he does. He described himself that way. And then we who have been drawn to him, who are attracted to his word who have been brought along in this remarkable, gracious Christian faith through the word of God, we have all individually experienced God making his word come alive. And suddenly he is sending his word and it is accomplishing what he sent it to accomplish. Okay, well, the clock is forcing me to stop right here. Not that I have anywhere to be, And not that I couldn't talk in this steroid rage. I could still talk for hours. Give me more water and I'll keep going. But we're going to stop right there and we are going to pick up at further demonstrations, further examples of God just saying, I'm God, I'm irresistible, I do whatever I want to do, and that... If it weren't that way, if it weren't God exercising his power in order to draw people to himself, nobody would come to him because we're certainly too depraved to ever make such grand and glorious decisions. During this week, when you have the opportunity, stop and just muse on the perfection of God. And the more that you can Think about the perfection of God in all his ways. The more that you just meditate on the perfection of God, the more safe and secure you're going to feel given our imperfections, our fallenness, and how hard it is for us to conceive that God could save or love people like us. It's because his love is perfect. And that perfect love is able to love somebody like us and the more you think about that i promise you the better you're going to feel thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace sunday morning message we invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates books Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.